Well, I just want to encourage you all of uh, what a blessing it is just to my own soul uh, to gather together and hear all of your voices uh, singing uh, in unison and in praise uh, to our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. And uh, one one additional announcement, uh, as uh, Bruce uh, had gone through the bulletin, those of you who read every single word in the bulletin, and, and that's all of you, right? You, you go through there with a fine-tooth comb. Some of you may have noticed that uh, in the, the children's ministry portion, it says that children's ministry is going to start back up again in August. And uh, that is currently... Uh, being postponed a little bit just as we kind of wait and see what's going to happen uh, overall with uh, Ada County and Meridian and the state of Idaho uh, in terms of uh, fully reopening. And you may have noticed some of the kids don't practice all of the social distancing protocols. Uh, and I know that uh, that decision may not be uh, popular with parents. I was getting a thumbs down uh, in the back. Did you guys hear the boos uh, from the, the back portions? And uh, I understand that that becomes a little bit of a hardship uh, for uh, parents of young children. Uh, and uh, we love having the kids in here. Uh, and we extend uh, a, a special additional grace uh, to all parents uh, of uh, of kids. And we're, we're glad to have entire families here with us uh, worshiping uh, this morning. Uh, and uh, this morning, it's a, again a privilege to be able to uh, continue uh, in our series uh, on uh, the household of God, uh, understanding what the church is called to be and called to do. Uh, and I want to tell you a little bit of a story of a church and its Easter pageant. Uh, it was a, a church that decided to, to to sponsor an Easter pageant, and uh, the idea was to take the the amazing story of uh, the, the cross and the resurrection and put it into a play you know, that would be able to proclaim that that message, that good news of Christ, uh, to people as they came to watch the play. And the elders of the church wanted to make sure that the gospel. Uh, would be clear in the performance of this Easter play. And, and that was the plan. And at the end of the play, people would be given an opportunity to uh, respond to the good news of the gospel. And as they were planning all of this, they realized you know, that the pageant would require some, some clever scripting to overcome the limitations of the stage. And, uh, of course, the performance had to be entertaining if you're inviting all of these people to it. So the songs uh, and the acting w- was was really well put together, and, and church members were called upon to, to build elaborate sets, and they, they worked tirelessly and rigorously uh, to uh, maintain uh, a production schedule so that the show would uh, come off on time. And, and zoos and farms were emptied uh, of animals and trainers and camels and sheep and cows walked uh, down uh, the aisle to the stage uh, to the delight of the audience and, and doves flew on cue uh, and uh, for the most part uh, the pageant went uh, really well uh, year in and year out uh, its popularity grew at that church and more and more people began to come for this Easter pageant but over time uh, as it became more and more popular, they needed to, to continue to increase the, the production level. So they hired Hollywood-level uh, producers. And, uh, and the role of Jesus was even played uh, by a Hollywood performer who wasn't a Christian. And although the church had one of the, the biggest sanctuaries in the area, the demands for uh, seats to each performance outstripped the supply uh, 
And free tickets were distributed for crowd control, and uh, there were weeks of performances, uh, and additional performances were, were added. And people came in from, from out of town just to see the, the performance of this Easter play. And when it all came together, it was just absolutely superb. And, and the favorite part of, of many who watched the play was when uh, the Roman centurion on a white stallion pulled out his sword and, and, and held it up. And you're like, where is that in the Gospels? And I'm not sure either, uh, but it was a very popular part of the play. And after the crucifixion was demonstrated and, and shown a bit more tastefully and theatrically than, than what really took place, Jesus was was raised up to the rafters by a, a means of you know some some wiring. It was all just amazing, but there was one problem with it. That's when when the church looked at what had happened year in and year out with this production, despite the the program's popularity, and it found that that virtually no one had come to faith in Christ because of that play. It was really no different for all of the the massive expenditures of money and all the the time spent building sets and hiring people and meeting uh, city building codes for hoisting people on wires and all of the thousands and thousands of people who attended, all of the the sweeping up from the animals, uh, there, there really wasn't any significant difference between what was happening and people coming to faith through their normal worship services and this extravagant pageant it's very easy in church to to lose sight of the goal or to allow the the means of achieving the goal to supersede the actual goal right several weeks ago as we started our series on the church we looked at the purpose of the church And we said that the purpose of the church, I'm going to give you another pop quiz. What is the purpose of the church? Worship. We exist to glorify God. And so because our purpose is not about us, it's about God, our priority then is to exalt God for who He is and what He has done, to to worship Him for all that He has accomplished on our behalf. And if we exist to glorify God, then the, the question can be asked, well, then how do we accomplish that? St. Thomas, you're giving us something to aim at. How do we actually hit that target? Well, really, everything that we've talked about since then is the means that we, that we go about as a, as a faithful church of accomplishing our main goal of glorifying God. In the subsequent weeks, we talked about the headship of Christ over the church. And so we glorify God by submitting to Christ as our Lord, as our Savior, and by acknowledging that He is the head of the church. We also glorify God by building upon the foundation of His Word rather than upon man's ideas or anything else. And last week we saw that we we glorify God by believing the gospel, the good news of what Jesus has done for us. That Jesus has lived and died to pay the penalty for our sin and that everybody who trusts in Him rather than in ourselves will be rescued, reconciled, and redeemed. That we will have salvation and eternal life by looking to Christ in faith. That is the message of the gospel. And now this week... Really what we're going to be looking at is what do we do with that message of the gospel? 
Right, and this week's message goes hand in hand with next week's message. I'm doing a little bit of foreshadowing just to keep you on the edge of your seats. Uh, this week's message is on evangelism, the mission of the church. And next week's message is on the method of the church, which is discipleship. Uh, and the two are inseparable and they go hand in hand. Uh, and the one leads into the other. And when I, when I speak of evangelism being the mission of the church and being inseparable from discipleship, of this is the, the means, this is what God has called us to do. This is how we are to glorify Him. By proclaiming the gospel to the world, evangelism, and then by proclaiming the gospel to those who believe in Christ. That, that's discipleship. We never move beyond the gospel. We just continue to understand it more deeply and apply it to our own lives. And if we, if we miss what the mission of the church is intended to be, it's really easy for, for us to be really busy in church, but, but not really to be accomplishing and doing the right things. And, and it feels like we're doing a lot of, a lot of good things and a lot of things are happening, but, uh, because we're, we're missing the mark. And what we'll look at next week is that God has given us this mission and then he's given us the, the method of how to accomplish that mission. He said, go and make disciples. How? By baptizing and teaching them to obey all that he has commanded. And so what we're going to look at this morning is the mission of the church, which is evangelism. And and what should evangelism look like in the church? And there are many, many answers to that question and, and not all of them are created equal. There's a variety of answers, but when, we're, when answering that question, we have to, to look to Scripture. And what I'm going to present to you this morning is what I feel Scripture has to say about evangelism and what our convictions are about evangelism here at Ambassador Bible Fellowship. And so this morning, what I'd like to do is walk you through five questions pertaining to evangelism. And those questions are going to be, what is evangelism? Who should evangelize? Why should we evangelize? How will evangelism change us? And then what does evangelism look like at ABF? Okay? Now off to the races. Here we go. Uh, question number one. What is evangelism? And, and it's helpful to, in, in speaking about what evangelism truly is, is, is also to, to clarify what it is not. So when I say evangelism, what am I not saying? Uh, and I'm going to, to, to piggyback or to quote uh, a man named John Cheeseman on the, the clarification that he provides on what evangelism is and what it is not. He says, evangelism is not persuading people to make a decision. It is not proving that God exists or making a good case for the truth of Christianity. It is not inviting someone to a meeting. It is not exposing the contemporary dilemma or arousing interest in Christianity. It is not wearing a badge saying, Jesus saves. Some of these things may be right and good in their place, but none of them should be confused with evangelism. And he goes on to define evangelism in this way. He says, to evangelize is to declare on the authority of God what he has done to save sinners. To warn men of their lost condition, to direct them to repent and to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Now, now I have a, my own definition, which is a little bit, a little bit more concise, and we'll kind of talk through the definition. I think it's uh, posted above me. I see a lot of eyes going that way, so I hope it's up there. Uh, and, and, and I would say evangelism uh, can be defined in this way. That, that faithful evangelism is teaching the message of the gospel with the aim of persuading and then leaving the results to God. Okay? And if we look at those, those key words there that I've, that I've highlighted in that definition, uh, the key components of evangelism, uh, the first key component is teaching. That when we are going to, to evangelize, when we're going to proclaim the gospel, we have to use words. We have to, to speak. Now, it doesn't mean that the message of the gospel is disconnected from what we actually do. It's actually just the opposite. That if we are saying one thing and doing another, what are people going to believe? What, what are they going to be convinced of? What we're actually doing. Uh, and so what we are saying needs to line up with what we are doing and vice versa. But evangelism, first and foremost, requires teaching. It requires words. Secondly, what we are to teach, what we are to proclaim, is the gospel that we discussed last week. Of what we looked at, of who God is, who man is as a sinner, who Christ is and what he has accomplished on our behalf. And then what is it we are called to do to be in right relationship with God? It's not by, by works that we are saved or reconciled with God. It's strictly and only on the basis of grace through faith in who Jesus is and what he has done. That is what we are to teach. And as we, as we go and speak and teach others about the gospel, we have an aim. We have a goal. Because if we aim for nothing, what will we hit? Nothing. Every single time. So, so we have an aim because we understand that every single person in the world, every single person who's lived throughout history, they are going to have a destiny in one of two places, right? There's either going uh, into to fellowship and eternal life with God, experiencing all of his benevolence for all of eternity, or eternal separation from God, hell only experiencing God's wrath and punishment for our sins. All of humanity is going to one of those two places. So we, we have an aim and an understanding that, that, that eternity hangs in the balance. So we proclaim the gospel with urgency, but then we also proclaim the gospel seeking to persuade people to trust in Christ. I love what Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11 says. He says, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, this is coming off of two verses where, where Paul is saying every single believer uh, will stand before God to be judged, not for our sins, but for rewards. He says, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. And that is what we intend to do. Our aim is to persuade people to trust in Christ. And then... That last little statement in my definition is, is we proclaim, and then who's in charge of the results? God. We leave the results up to Him. Because I'm not able to transform someone's heart. Neither are you. The only one who can transform the human heart is God alone. You can think of it this way. There's an illustration of this in Mark chapter 4, verses 26 and 27. 
Jesus gives this parable. He says that the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows, and he knows not how. So Jesus points to what a farmer does. And what does a farmer do? He plants seed, and then what does he do? He goes to sleep. He goes and he rests, and and Jesus says the farmer doesn't know how the seed grows, but he trusts that it will grow. And that is what we are called to do, that we continue to, to cast out the seed. We continue to proclaim the gospel. And we don't know how or when the seeds will, will grow up and bear fruit, but we trust that they will. So we are called to be like that farmer, of going and proclaiming the gospel faithfully. And then we leave the results of the gospel in the hands of a sovereign God. But some of you might be thinking... Well, evangelism just isn't for me. Evangelism is for you, Pastor Thomas, or for for Pastor Bruce. But you can't expect me to share the gospel with others. And that's, practically speaking, the way most of us live, right? That evangelism is for those Green Beret Christians, the, the special operations troops, right? When someone has a question, we send them in. We say, Pastor, can you answer this question? But that is not what we see in Scripture. If you guys have your Bibles there, turn with me to Matthew chapter 28. A passage that you are probably familiar with, a passage that we're going to camp out in a little bit this week and, and next week. But this is, this is known as the Great Commission. This is what Jesus calls every single believer to do as he departs from this earth. Jesus is departing and he says this to his disciples. And let's begin reading in verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, as we read that couple of Bible study things here, who is Jesus speaking to? The eleven disciples, right? And so you, could, you might say, well, that's just a command for them. Just for those 11 men. And they're the ones who are supposed to handle that. But what's wrong with that picture? How do I know that it's not just those 11 men that Jesus is speaking to? Well, just think of what he commanded them to do. Go and make disciples of all the nations. Is that feasible for 11 men to go and make disciples of all the nations? Is that possible? No. They, they can't do that on their own. But we know that this great commission is supposed to be carried forth. That as those eleven went out and as they made disciples, what were they supposed to, to teach those disciples to do? The same exact thing. Fulfill this great commission. And if you really think about it, this commission has to be fulfilled every single generation. Because where the gospel has been in the past is not where the gospel is now. 
You guys know that the, the gospel covered most of Asia during the time of Genghis Khan? That Christianity flowed freely in Asia during that time, but, but where do we typically see Christianity and think of Christianity now? Not, not in Asia. We think of it as a kind of a, a Western religion, but that's not the case. The Great Commission must be fulfilled every single generation, which means we have our work cut out for us. Right, so, so I'm making this argument that the Great Commission is something that, that all Christians are to, to obey and to fulfill. Let's see if that actually bears out in the early church. Turn with me over to, to the book of Acts. Just a couple books to your right in your Bible. Now, Acts, Acts 1 through 5, we see the, the very beginning of the church. And in those chapters... It is the apostles who are doing the preaching, who are doing the, the teaching, who are doing the disciple-making. The, they are the proclaimers. But then, and I guess as the, as the apostles are, are teaching, thousands of people are coming to know Christ. Thousands in Jerusalem. And now we have Acts chapter 6. There's conflict in the church. Gasp. Uh, and and then the, there are deacons who are uh, identified and, and told to, to serve. But then what's amazing is that one of those deacons, one of those second generation disciples, gives a, a sermon, a speech in Acts chapter 7. If you look at that, just look at the length of Acts chapter 7, you're like, that's a long chapter, Right? And that's a deacon who's preaching. And he's preaching to the religious leaders who had Jesus crucified. That's boldness. Additionally, that same group who had Jesus crucified, when Stephen confronts them about it, what do they do to Stephen? They stone him. And that begins an increased persecution of the church. And if you look with me at Acts chapter 8, verse 1, At the end of chapter 7, we were introduced to this man, this young man named Saul. And chapter 8, verse 1 says, And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. That means what happened? How many disciples were there in Jerusalem at that point in time? As I said, thousands. And so what happened to those thousands? They are forced to scatter, forced to, to flee for their lives. But who are the only ones who remain in Jerusalem? The apostles. But let's keep looking. And devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. And then verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Now wait a second. Who was it that was scattered? It's not the apostles because they're back in Jerusalem. So what are all of those Christians who were scattered into Judea and Samaria? What are they going and doing? They're preaching. They're going and teaching others the message of the gospel, who Jesus is and what he has done with an aim to 
persuade, and then they're leaving the results up to God. And that is how the message of the church advanced in the Roman Empire. If you, if you turn over to Acts chapter 19, that young man, Saul, who approved the execution of Stephen, well, the Lord has worked in his, his life, and he's now the apostle Paul. And he's being used by God. He's going on missionary journeys. And if you look with me in Acts chapter 19, we see that Paul is in Ephesus. And it describes his time in Ephesus in this way, beginning in verse 8. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. And when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. And this continued for two years so that... All the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Now, wait a second. Where was Paul for two years? He's in Ephesus. But what is what is Luke, the author of Acts, what does he record? Where do, did the gospel stay in Ephesus? What happened? All of Asia, all of modern day Turkey ended up hearing the gospel because Paul was in one place in Ephesus. What does that mean? That the gospel was being carried forth not by Paul, but all of those whom Paul was teaching and discipling there in Ephesus went and they, they, they shared the gospel. They proclaimed. They started churches. And of the, the churches that are mentioned in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, there's seven of them. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Of those cities... We only have a record of Paul visiting Ephesus. And you can add to that list the, the church at Colossae. All of these churches started not because of what Paul did in each of those towns, but because Paul went to Ephesus and people came to know Christ and then they scattered and went back to their hometowns. And guess what they did when they went back home? They started sharing the gospel. They started to teach others about Jesus. In the book of Acts, the gospel was carried forth by the apostles, but then also by the hands and feet of everyday Christians. And if you really step back and think about the, the course of church history, how has the gospel come to us in the 21st century? Others have carried it to us. Yes, we have the word of God. But there have been other faithful generations of, of Christians who have passed the baton, who have carried that message forth. And now each and every one of us, if we are a Christian, are called to participate in that great commission of passing the message of the gospel on to others. And we're going to do that in various ways, and we're going to do that with, with, with various levels of skill and with various fruit that's going to come from that. Some of us are going to be really, really gifted evangelists, and others... Maybe not so. But all of us are called to be evangelists. All of us are called to be ambassadors. All of us are called to be willing proclaimers of who Jesus is. And what's amazing is really looking at how people actually come to faith. Because you may have thought that, oh, people only come to faith by, by coming to the church service and, and hearing the pastor preach. It's actually very rarely that 
That happens. Most people come to faith because a Christian, a family, a friend, a neighbor, invested some time with them. And gradually, over the period of days, months, weeks, years, they taught the gospel to them. They opened the Bible and showed them who Jesus is and what he had done. It was a very interesting book that I would highly recommend. Uh, the author's name is Randy Newman, and uh, the, the title is Unlikely Converts. And, and what he does is he interviews all of these people who recently came to faith in Christ. And he asks them about their, their journey. Uh, and it's, it's really an amazing book. And he says this, after all of these interviews, he says, Quite a few people told me several differing factors that played a part in their stories. So they wove together intellect, emotions, social connections, and other factors in a balanced way. And at the end of all my interviews, I asked people to sum up their narratives by identifying three, the three most significant parts of their journey, of how they came to know Christ. He said, I started making elaborate color-coded charts to display the rainbow of suggestions, of intellectual questions indicated in green, and emotional struggles coded as blue, and relational connections shaded as pink, and so forth. And as he looked at all of these charts, he realized that none of them was just a single color. That as the Lord draws people to himself, he uses a variety of means. A variety of people. And those are the things that we need to keep in mind and how we have to see every single one of us is called to be an evangelist. We don't know how the Lord is going to to use us. We may uh, raise uh, or make a comment, a statement to a co-worker. uh, uh, Just creating a a little bit of a pebble in their shoe, so to speak. Make a statement about uh, who God is. Maybe something as simple as, well, you, you really can't have any type of rules. You can't have morality without a, a, a rule maker. Right? Evolution provides no ethics. And, and those who hold to an evolutionary worldview, they have to borrow from Christians to know what's right and wrong. It's a great thing to tell uh, someone who's, who's sticking to that. You have no grounds for, for condemning anything. So we have to, to know and understand that we are called to fulfill the Great Commission, every single one of us. And we need to be willing to, to submit to that call and to be used of God. One pastor and theologian says this, says that the Great Commission is binding upon every member of the whole church. Every Christian is called to be a witness to Christ in the particular environment in which God has placed him. Further, although public ministry of the word is a high office, private witness or personal evangelism has a value which in some respects surpasses even that of preaching since the message can then be adapted more personally. Sometimes your personal evangelism can be more effective than my preaching because... The person that you're sitting down and talking with, you know them. You're able to, to engage in a conversation with them, to answer their questions, to, to address their concerns. And some of you may be feeling like, well, I, I still can't evangelize. I, I, I can't preach. But if you want an interesting study, now as you read through the book of Acts, make note of all of the different words 
that, that are used for evangelism in that book. You'll see this, that, that sometimes the apostles and, and Christians are preaching, proclaiming, testifying, speaking, reasoning, telling the good news, explaining, proving, teaching, or declaring. And really, you can do all of those, even the preaching. Remember Acts chapter 4? All those who were scattered went out and preached the word of God. Now, hopefully at this point, you are... You're convinced that that there is a a need for you to share the gospel, that you need to communicate your faith to others. But but knowing that that's what you need to do doesn't make it any easier, right? You all know that you should exercise daily and eat healthily, right? But does that make it any easier to actually do that? We all know those things. Yeah, I I, I should uh, eat fewer calories and fewer cookies and ice cream and and all of that. But still, the, the temptation arises... And we give in. And we all know that we should be sharing the gospel, but we still struggle to do it. Which then leads us to our next question of why should we evangelize? Why should we share who Jesus is and what he has done in our life? Why why should we proclaim that to others? I'll give you three, three simple reasons. Number one, because God first loved us. 1 John 4:19 We love because he first loved us. 1 John 3:16 By this we know love that he laid down his life for us and then the implication of that and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. The love that God has shown to us should motivate us to go and love others. Romans chapter 5 verse 8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were in rebellion against God, he was working to pursue us and to reconcile with us. We should share the gospel with others out of thanksgiving for all that God has done for us. And with a worshipful heart. And and when we proclaim the gospel, who gets the glory? God. Because He is the one that transforms human hearts. We should evangelize because God first loved us. Secondly, because we love our neighbors. Maybe we should say we should love our neighbors. We don't love our neighbors as we should. But we should proclaim the gospel to them. Because again, if, if we have known and experienced God's love, if we've seen the transformation that, that He's brought about in our life, if we know and understand that we have been rescued from the wrath to come, wouldn't we want that for those around us? Shouldn't we have a burden upon our hearts? And again, seeing and understanding that others need to know Christ as we know Him? Someone has said that uh, evangelism is, is one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. And that, that's what we need to see and begin to develop a, a lens of, of there are others who are starving around us. And we have good news. If you have your Bibles, just turn back with me to, to 2 Kings chapter 7. It's a wonderful example of this. Now, leading up to what we're going to, to read, 
the, we're looking at the, the, the northern kingdom of Israel and the capital city of Samaria, and they are being besieged uh, by, by the kingdom of, of Syria. Uh, and the, the people in Samaria are starving. They, they have been under siege for quite some time. And then we, we, we see in the, the beginning of chapter 7, verse 1, the ESV has this little title, uh, Elisha promises food. But Elisha said, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, tomorrow about this time a seah of fine flour shall be sold for a shekel and two seahs of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. And then the captain on whose hand the king leaned said to the man of God, if the Lord himself should make windows in heaven, could this thing be? But he said, you shall see it with your own eyes, but you shall not eat of it. So Elisha says, the city is starving, but we're going to eat well tomorrow. We're going to have food enough to be able to sell. And then continue reading with me in verse 3. Now there were four men who were lepers at the entrance to the gate, and they said to one another, we are sitting here until we die. Or why are we sitting here until we die? If we say, let us enter the city, the famine is in the city, and we shall die there. And if we sit here, we die also. So now... Let us go over to the camp of the Syrians. If they spare our lives, we shall live. And if they kill us, we shall but die. So they arose at twilight to go to the camp of the Syrians. But when they came to the edge of the camp of the Syrians, behold, there was no one there. For the Lord had made the army of the Syrians hear the sound of chariots and of horses, the sound of a great army, so that they said to one another, Behold, the king of Israel has hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Egypt to come against us. So they fled away in the twilight and abandoned their tents, their horses, and their donkeys, leaving the camp as it was, and fled for their lives." And when these lepers came to the edge of the camp, they went into a tent and ate and drank, and they carried off silver and gold and clothing and went and hid them. Then they came back and entered another tent and carried off things from it and went and hid them. So these four men have access to all of the food and all of the treasures of the Syrian camp. But then they're going to connect the dot in the next verse. And they said to one another, We are not doing right. This is a day of good news. If we are silent and wait until the morning light, punishment will overtake us. See, they understood that they were getting all of the benefits of this Syrian camp, but what's happening in the city of Samaria? They're starving. They have good news. Can they sit on that good news and do nothing while everybody in the city is starving? What what do they realize they have to do? They have to go and, and share that good news. They have to go and tell others of what has happened, of the deliverance that the Lord has brought to them. And this is so important for us to see and understand that that we can't sit on this news when there are others who need to hear it. We can't just keep it to ourselves. Out of love for our neighbor, we need to go and proclaim it. That's what should motivate our evangelism. And then the third motivation for why we should evangelize is because God has commanded us. 
Even as, as we saw in, in the Great Commission, very clear command to go, baptize, and teach. Another version of the Great Commission in John chapter 20, verse 21, after Jesus had risen from the grave, He said to His disciples, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent Me, even so I am sending you. As God the Father sent the Son to proclaim the Gospel, what is Jesus doing to His disciples? He is sending us forth. Well, we have to, to keep that in mind. And as God has commanded us, we must obey. There's another great example of this. If you turn over to, to Mark chapter 5. We'll just stop here really briefly. But it's powerful to, to notice. Now Mark chapter 5 you see the, the heading at the beginning of the chapter. It says, Jesus heals a man with a demon. And there was a, a demoniac. And, and this is uh, the, the story of when, when Jesus says, what's the demon's name? He says, "We legion, for we are many. And, and Jesus rescues this man who was enslaved to demon possession. And this man who has been set free by Jesus, who has been healed. Look at me at Mark chapter 5, beginning in verse 18. This is the interaction after the man has been healed, after the townspeople come and see what has taken place. They, the townspeople are frightened. They're like, Jesus, if, if you were able to control this guy who was out of control, you scare us. So they ask Jesus to leave. And Jesus is, is ready, uh, getting ready to go. And verse 18, as he, Jesus, was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons, begged him that he might be with him. Right? And that's everything that we have talked about, right? That is the heart that we are to have in our relationship with Christ, where we just want to be with him. That's a wonderful desire that this man has. But what does Jesus say to him? He did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends. And tell them how much the Lord has done for you. And how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim it in the Decapolis. How much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. So we have to to see and understand that even though we long to be with Christ. That is a phenomenal desire. But he's also told us to go and do something, to go and tell others of what he has done for us. And in addition to those big three reasons, out of love for God, out of love for neighbor, and because God has commanded us, it's important to understand also the the role that evangelism plays in our own lives as Christians. And that evangelism is one of the means that God will use to sanctify you, to, to shape you, into the image of His Son, Jesus Christ. So we might ask, how will evangelism change us? And some answers for you. Number one, it will will grow our faith in God. Because as you go and you share your faith, how will you feel? Terrified? Nervous? Scared? So, So when you go and share your faith, who do you have to rely upon? God. It will increase your faith. It will also shrink your fear of man. 
Now, that you will have to, to get over your fear of what others might think or what might be the, the consequences of sharing the gospel with others. What will they think of me? What might happen? That, that's always what goes through our head. I love this story of uh, many years ago, Ella Fitzgerald uh, sang on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, and, and she, she sang to open the show, and she just sang beautifully and amazingly. Dazzled everyone with her, her vocal ability, uh, high, low, her, just her, her vocal range. And, and she finished the song with this, this really high, soaring note. And the audience just erupted when she was done. And, and right after she was done singing, she walked over uh, and sat down next to Johnny Carson. And she said, whew, I was so nervous. And Johnny Carson is shocked. He's what? Like, you're Ella Fitzgerald. Like, you're not some a new performer trying to, to make their, their break into Hollywood. Like, how is it that you were nervous? And, and she just said, well, I'm, I'm always scared when I sing. Think about that. She, she's sung that song hundreds of times. She's performed probably thousands of times. And yet, she was scared. She says, I'm scared every time I sing. And so what was her secret? It wasn't just not being afraid, but it was continuing through. Learning how to continue to to sing even though she was nervous. Even though she was scared. And that's the key for evangelism with us. It doesn't teach us how to not have fear. It just shows us how we, we overcome fear. Of how to continue to be obedient even when we are nervous. Or scared of sharing the gospel with others. So evangelism will will grow our fear of God. It will shrink our fear of man. Thirdly, it will encourage our sanctification. Because if, if you're going and you're actually sharing the gospel with others, that invites their scrutiny. You ever think about that? Because as soon as you label yourself and identify yourself as a Christian, they're going to be watching you to see what you do how you act, how you conduct yourself. And if if you uh, sin and you don't acknowledge it, if if you are saying one thing and doing another, what's going to happen to your witness? It's going to be basically nullified. So evangelism calls you to the carpet, so to speak. It encourages our sanctification. Fourth, it will also force us to learn. Because... Those of you who have shared the gospel with others, what happens when you start a conversation about spiritual things? People have questions. And sometimes they're really hard questions, right? And sometimes you have to say, I am not sure. I don't know. And that's an okay thing. You can say, let me get back to you. Uh, Don't make an answer up. That's not going to work. but, but it's okay uh, to say, let me get back to you. And then what is it that you have to do? You've got to go learn. You begin to learn and grow as you have conversations about your faith. It encourages you to learn. It forces you to learn. It also will redirect our focus. Because evangelism helps to turn our focus uh, from the unholy trinity of me, myself, and I... Uh, and, and it gets us focused outwards, thinking about others. 
How can I share the gospel with them? How can I uh, love them and demonstrate the love of Christ for them? It redirects our focus and then something else that's becoming more and more prevalent. If we are sharing the gospel, it will bring persecution. That, That now that the gospel has a cost to it, that it will cost us to be faithful to this command of Christ. And I've said it before, and I've said it again, those of you who are working in, in the secular realm, you need to begin now to develop a, a theology of being fired. And uh, in, in understanding that you living at this point in time as a Christian might cost you your job. That's something to, to wrestle with and to come to grips with, to be okay with. But all of those ways are going to be how the Lord uses evangelism to to shape us, to sanctify us, to make us more dependent upon Him, to be less reliant upon ourselves, to burden our hearts for those around us, and to make us more and more like His Son, Jesus Christ. Now, I know that was a, that was a lot. We can come up for air for a bit, swim to the surface. Okay. All right. Now, we've talked about all of that. Now, now, what does evangelism practically look like here at ABF? What is it we want it to look like? What should you come to expect? Well, three things. Number one, you should expect that we are going to call you to be intentional in evangelism. Now, this is the clear command of Scripture for everyone, for every Christian, So if we're going to be faithful pastors and elders, we have to call you to this. You need to to know the gospel and be willing to proclaim it. We're going to call every Christian to be an evangelist, to be an ambassador. If you're not familiar with 2 Corinthians 5.20, that's where we we got our church name. 2 Corinthians 5.20 says this, that therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. We're going to call everybody to be an evangelist. Everyone called to be an an ambassador. We're going to call you to be intentional about evangelism. Or as one uh, pastor put it, uh, we're going to have you plan to stop not evangelizing. As you wrap your brain around that. Uh, But... Uh, we want to help you to be intentional because if you're not intentional about evangelism, what tends to happen? It it kind of disappears, right? You're you're too busy. You didn't think about it. But if you are intentional, yeah, it will start to happen. And so to, to help you be intentional, to help us all be intentional, we practice something that we call prayer, care, share. So just to help us begin to think about, hey, who are, who are three to five people that we can begin to pray for? Neighbors, family, friends, co-workers. How can I begin to pray for them, for their salvation, for the Lord to open doors of conversation uh, and avenues where I can get together with them to demonstrate the love of Christ to them? How do I pray for them? How do I care for them? And then eventually building to the point of if we're going to, to teach the gospel, what do we have to use? Words. Getting to that point of sharing the gospel with them. 
And again, people come to faith gradually and supernaturally. So we want to be intentional. Think about who we can be reaching out to, proclaiming the gospel to, caring for. And then what do we do? We leave the results up to the Lord. So we will call you to be intentional in evangelism. We will also equip you to evangelize. We want to make sure every single one of you know the gospel. Because you can't pass on to others what you yourself don't know, right? And just think of it this way. If you had uh, to, to give me the gospel in one minute, would you be ready to do that? Would you be ready to say, yes, here's, here's the, the, the gospel, a one-minute summary that you could share with someone at, at Starbucks or, I guess not at Starbucks right now under the coronavirus, but maybe someday when the, when the world reopens that you could, you could give the gospel to somebody at a Starbucks as you're waiting for your drink. But, but that's the, the goal, that we will equip you to evangelize so that you know the gospel, that you know how to share the gospel. And that you know how to defend your faith. We will equip you and then we will also partner with you to evangelize. We will, we will pray with you uh, for those on your prayer care share list. We will partner together in our growth groups at net events. And we'll do uh, outreach events here. Uh, men's and women's breakfasts and, and Super Bowl party and, and such. And, and we'll present the gospel and call people to faith and, and partner with you in reaching those uh, that you are reaching out to. That is our, our commitment and what you can expect. And, and our hope is to have a culture of evangelism here at our church where every single person embraces their role as an evangelist, as an ambassador. Where we all understand that what evangelism is, evangelism is, and why we should evangelize. Where we are all being transformed as we share the gospel and with others in our community, where we partner together to reach our community with the gospel. That is what we long to have taking place here. And at the beginning of my, my message, I, I told you about that, that church with its Easter pageant. Well, as that, as that church began to examine... The, the fruit of all their labor, they, they realized that their, their big Easter program wasn't having the impact that they thought it was. So the elders made a really hard decision. Do you know what that decision was? They decided to cancel the Easter pageant that had been going on for years and years. And think about how hard that decision was. Thousands of people were coming to it. Thousands were involved in it. And they said, you know what? We, we have to blade it. People love programs, and again, that was a well-attended program, but the church decided in the end that if members spent half as much time in having gospel conversations throughout the week as the time that they were putting in for that pageant, do you know what would happen? That they wouldn't be able to, to build a sanctuary big enough. Because you, you think of it, we're gathered together here right now. As we go out and we scatter, how many people will all of us come into contact with this week? Hundreds. Thousands. And, and that really is what we want to see. We, we want to, to gather together to worship on Sunday mornings and then we scatter to proclaim the gospel on a week-in and week-out basis. That is what we want. Christians intentionally teaching the gospel with the aim of persuading and then leaving the results to God. 
And the story of this church highlights the, the two philosophies or methodologies in church ministry. You can have a, a come-and-see mindset. Where you, you can spend the majority of your time doing all these big uh, programs and, and seeking to attract people uh, to the church. It takes a lot of time and energy and manpower. And, and the, the programs often become the ends rather than the means. So there's a, there's a come and see philosophy or there's a go and tell philosophy. And we want to be a, a, a go and tell church. Rather than doing the large programs, we, we want all of you, what we see in scriptures, all of us are to, to scatter into our neighborhoods, into our homes, into our workplaces. And we're called to be witnesses for Jesus in those places. And we are called to, to bear testimony, to, to live a holy life, and then eventually to teach the gospel to those that we are coming in, into conversation with. That is what we want to see happen. We want to be a go-and-tell church where the, the message of the gospel is always on our lips. And that we are willing to go fearfully, prayerfully, and dependently to tell others about who Jesus is and what he has done in our own lives. And I look forward to, to doing that. And, and may the Lord bless our efforts and may he open doors for us to go and proclaim His Son. Amen?